We are continuing our exposition of the book of First Timothy, and we come now to the final chapter. And as we've seen over the last number of weeks, there has been this continued trend of showing honor, and that will continue today. So, First Timothy six one. Let's hear God's word for us today. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be slandered. But those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do come now into your presence to hear your word, O God. We come, uh, we want to learn of you, to be, to be instructed by you, to know you in a greater way, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to walk in growing, grateful obedience to your commands because your gospel has come into our hearts, your truth by your spirit has wrought faith, And that faith has wrought fruit, transformation, internal deliverance. And so, God, we pray that that we might today, in Christ, grow. Uh, We pray, God, that if there are any here in our midst today that do not know Jesus today as Lord, as Redeemer, that you might be pleased to give the gift of faith, that today the glory of God might be beheld in the person of Jesus Christ. So use this time for your glory. Have your way in our hearts. Help us with the distractions that we face, O God, to be at peace and to be focused. Help the weakness of our flesh. Uh, Speak to us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have probably all heard of the uh, many Christians that are coming to faith in China. And as Paul prayed... In various places throughout the world that are difficult to be a Christian in. Those Christians in China are experiencing the new birth. They have been born from above, as every true Christian is. And they are beginning now to walk in the joy of being a child of God, of of learning and knowing the Word of God and growing through the Spirit by the Word. They are experiencing the joy of the covenant community of the people of God gathering as we are today on the Lord's Day to to experience a a foretaste of that eternal Sabbath rest in Christ that we long for. They're seeking to faithfully serve their new Lord and Redeemer. And all of this glorious gospel fruit is taking place in the context of the people's Republic of China where they live under communist rule, where their church meetings are often invaded by authorities, where their brethren at times are hauled off and incarcerated, where their buildings at times are destroyed and and laid waste by the government. And so they have to wrestle with faithfulness in the context of a broken and oppressive society. And we know that when God calls a sinner, whether it be China 
or here or anywhere in the world that we are set free from the enslavement of our will and the bondage of our sin. We are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We are reconciled as once rebels, but now worshipers of the true God. This is the work that God does. And if you're a Christian here today, this is the work that you have experienced of the fruit of the gospel. Amen? But at the same time, with all that work that takes place, we are left within the context of the broken structures and systems and relationships of this fallen and cursed world. Trying to live godly in an ungodly age. And so in our text today, Paul addresses a live issue for every Christian, wherever we live. How do we live faithfully in a faithless age? And he exhorts Christians to honor even the sinful leaders, even the sinful, broken systems that we find ourselves in that seek to oppress us and at times do us harm. So my thesis today, if you will, is this. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. We must practice godly submission regardless of present circumstances. Christ is Lord. So we must practice godly submission regardless of present circumstances. Now up until this point, in all of chapter 5, God, in His Word, has been focused on the honor that we are to show brothers and sisters within the local church. We began discussing honor shown to elderly women, honor shown to elderly men, honor shown to men and women younger than us, women in all purity, young men as brothers. Uh, we, we learned that we are to show honor to worthy widows, those that are destitute and need the care of the church. Uh, we learned last week that we are to honor the elders, the leaders of the local church church. Today, for the first time, Paul gets out of the four walls of the church, if you will, and begins to exhort the church to show honor in those areas that have yet to be redeemed. Those areas where we find ourselves that are still imperfect and still often broken. And he urges, then, the saints, because of who we serve, to practice godly submission. We'll see that today for three reasons. Number one, that the, that the name of God is honored. Secondly, that the doctrine of God is adorned. And thirdly, because God redeems souls and not social systems. And so firstly, we hear from the Apostle Paul that Christ is Lord. Thus we must practice godly submission that the name of God is honored. Long ago on Mount Sinai, Moses went up on the mountain in the midst of the clouds and the thunder and the smoke and the fire and the quaking of the earth. He ascended Mount Sinai, and it was there that he received what we call the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And as we heard, the Ten Commandments are the moral fabric of God's standard of righteousness, the, the foundation of that which God calls good. We read in Romans chapter 2 that that moral law is written on the heart of every man because we are made in the image of God, that law that we suppress in unrighteousness. 
And that law at Mount Sinai was engraved on two tablets of stones. And in our homes throughout the week, every week, but in these last number of weeks, we have been seeking to teach our children Ten Commandments. And throughout the history of the church, this has been one of the most basic things for Christians to know, is the Ten Commandments. And so as we have been catechizing our children and helping them remember, Lord willing, these things, a couple weeks ago we asked them the question, what is the third commandment? So kids, do you remember what the third commandment is? Number three, two weeks ago, the third commandment is, anybody got it? You shall not take Amen. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, this commandment reaches far and wide, far beyond the using of God's name as a curse word, as blasphemous as that is. And Paul applies that commandment to this passage here today. Think with me for a moment, beloved. What is a Christian, ultimately? A Christian is one that has bowed the knee to King Jesus. Amen? A Christian is the person, Paul says, that has confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believed in the heart that God raised Him from the dead. A Christian is one that has been brought from a kingdom that was filled with darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And thus the Christian has now a new king, and he is now the subject of that new king. And so the Christian bears the name of the king. I mean, the word Christian means little Christ. And it was initially a, a sort of derogatory term. I'll look at all these little, little Christ running around trying to be like Jesus. And so Christian, you bear his name if you know him. His, your name is written in his book, and, and your name, he says, is graven on his hands. And so as we serve Christ as our, as our Lord, Paul would say that to refuse to submit to God-ordained human authority, even in a fallen and profane world, in broken systems, is to take the name of our Lord and Master in vain. Is to treat Him and His commandments as if they are not worthy of obeying. Look back with me in our text 1 Timothy 6.1, I'm reading today out of the Legacy Standard Bible, if anyone gets thrown off. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God will not be slandered. The LSB says slandered. I think the ESV says reviled there. Uh, the Greek word is blasphemeo. Any thoughts on what that might be in English, right? You hear the word blasphemy there, right? Which I think the authorized has. All that are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God is not blasphemed or slandered or reviled. And so we've talked a lot, as I said, about relationships in the church. And now Paul addresses those Christians that find themselves in the context of a slave-master relationship. They've become Christians, 
They've been set free from the bondage of their own will. They've been set free from the fear of death and from the bondage of sin. And yet they are the property of another human being. And what are, we, what are they to do? Right? How are they to respond? Because when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed, right? But I'm still a slave to this man. And maybe he's even a vile sinner. Now, it's been well documented, I think, that slavery in the first century was similar and also different than the slavery that we think about that happened in America, chattel slavery. I just want to say clearly that God in the Bible condemns chattel slavery, the form of slavery that was found in this country, that is man-stealing, condemned in 1 Timothy chapter 1. ESV says kidnapping, the old language was man-stealing, that is stealing human beings as property and using them for your own ends. The slavery in the first century, though, was commonly a man would sell himself into slavery. It was a willing agreement. And now the master did have absolute rights over the slave. They generally, now I say generally, we can overgeneralize, they generally showed them respect. It was legal to beat a slave, but it was not the common practice as the atrocities that we have in our minds here in America. In the first century, slaves could marry, they could accumulate wealth, they could purchase their own freedom, they could run a business. A slave could usually be free uh, in seven years, and they were normally free by the age of 30. Sometimes, of course, their masters were harsh and cruel and wicked. It is said that in Paul's day, um, some two-thirds of the Roman empire's, uh, Empire were enslavement. They were slaves. And not long before Jesus came, some 90% of the Roman Empire consisted of those that were enslaved to a master. And so this was very common, that the churches would be filled with those that were the property of another human being. And so while the situation is somewhat different than it was in America you were still a slave, right? You were still the property of another human being. And what does Paul say? This might upset some folks. He says that the slave master is worthy of all honor. And thus, it is right for a Christian slave to submit, to show respect, and to work hard to his slave master. Now, this is not confined to this passage. Paul has much to say about slaves in the New Testament. Another text is Ephesians 6. He says here, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the integrity of your heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serving with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. Now here lies the ultimate point, right? He says, serve your master with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ. Because it is the Christian slave that serves an ultimate king. And it is not the slave master. Now he said, do not serve by way of eye service or as men Pleasers. Now, we know what he means there, right? Uh, not all that long ago, I used to work in a cabinet shop, and 
Some days you'd come to work and it just felt a little bit loose. The music was louder. People were standing around talking more. It just felt different. And I'd come and ask what's going on. Well, the boss is in Ashland all day. He's not around. And so everyone's sort of doing what they want a bit. They're working. But it sort of exposes that when the boss is there, we work a bit different. right? We, some broad brushing here, but Paul says, do not work as a man pleaser. Do not work as, as eye service. You know, you tell your, your little ones to clean up the, the mess they made, and as you watch, they sort of clean, and when you look away, they start playing with the toys and get distracted, and then, oh, mom's looking, i got to get going again. No, Paul says that the slave is to serve his master in the integrity of his heart as to Christ. Serving with goodwill as to the Lord, doing the will of God from the heart. It is because Christians have another king, and all that we do is to be done unto, unto the Lord. I, something struck out to me there, though. He said, doing the will of God from the heart. So it is God's will that you submit to that unruly, unholy boss that you, that you have. Anyone ever had an unruly, unholy boss? <laughs> I had an unruly, unholy boss. I have had. We've all had. Maybe you have one now. Maybe your vocational life is a burden because you have someone that you begrudgingly serve every day, that you have to put up with their attitude. And in your mind, they're not all that worthy of honor. They're not a respectable person. And the last thing that you want to do is to show them the respect that you feel they have never actually earned. But Paul says it's the will of God that you would serve this slave master, this employer, from the heart as to Christ. Because you serve ultimately, beloved, another king, not that man. It is God's will for you, wives, that you submit to what is probably at times a difficult husband. (laughs) An unruly husband, uh, maybe a short-tempered husband. Husband, a husband that is growing, Lord willing, in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Kids, is there ever a time where you feel like, man, mom and dad, they're not fair. I wasn't really wrong. I wasn't really bad. Why does my sister always have it so good? Why does my brother never get in trouble? But I always seem to get focused on. Or I didn't even really do anything wrong. And here I am being disciplined again. God says that it is His will that we submit in all of the positions of authority that He places us under, ultimately for the glory of God. Because He is the King. He is our ruler. And we do so in obedience to Him. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, there is a line. We don't obey our boss and sin against God. We don't obey our husband and sin against God. We don't obey our parents and sin against God. Listen to what Peter says. He speaks on this as well. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to those who are good and considerate, now here's the rub, but also those who are crooked. Not only to those that treat you well and serve you well and 
pay you well. But he says to those who are crooked, for this finds favor. This finds grace in God's sight. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. He said, you find grace in God's sight. If you suffer unjustly, but you bear up under sorrows. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure? I think it needs to be said that if we sin, if we are foolish in our decisions, and we reap that which we have sown, well, then we had that coming. Right? That is a simple biblical principle of reaping and sowing. And if we reap sinful, foolish decisions, we will sow, if we sow, Sinful, foolish decisions we will reap. And so he says, if you sin and you suffer, there's no real honor in enduring that suffering. You had it coming. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. Now hear this, beloved. For to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. If you do good and suffer for it, To this you have been called. Why? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Christ is Lord, and thus we must practice godly submission that the doctrine of God, excuse me, that the name of God, the name of our Lord be honored. That is, that the world would have no accusation to make against God as, and His church. Now, slaves in Paul's day were known as being lazy and entitled. But when honor is given to that unruly boss, when respect is given to that unruly boss, when obedience is given to the one that has not earned any respect or any honor, then the name of God is glorified as you, saint, work unto His glory for the sake of His name. Secondly, we see that Christ is Lord, and thus we must practice godly submission that the doctrine of God be adorned. That the doctrine of God be adorned. Back in 1 Timothy 6, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as Worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be slandered. And our teaching will not be slandered. And I want to read also Titus 2.9. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be pleasing, not contradicting, not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in everything. Now, I have to admit that this statement has always been somewhat of a mystery to me. How how can I adorn the Bible's teaching? How can I adorn the gospel? Well, the word here for adorn is the word cosmeo, where we get the word cosmetics. It means to beautify or to decorate something, to adorn something something, to cause it to be beautiful. Now, 
commonly, I'm going to stereotype again, but commonly men and women think a bit differently, right? You're saying, yeah, they do. When we move into a house, we have the truck and we back up the truck and guys, we throw down the couch, throw down the table, maybe hook up the TV and I'm home, right? I'm done. Here's a helm. Here's my furniture. We're good to go. Uh, But the ladies, they beautify the house and you take that white shell of four walls and you adorn it so that it feels like home, right? You, You present it in a better light that is beautiful. Some of us here in a few weeks or so, maybe some of you already have, are going to get a green tree and post it up in your living room. Some of you will even pull that plastic thing out of the attic. But when you get that tree, it's, it's really just a dead tree, right? And you adorn it with lights and all the stuff that we adorn Christmas trees with, and it looks beautiful. It's, it's beautified, if, if you will. This word is also used to describe the, the temple. It was adorned with marble and with gold. It's used in 1 Timothy 2 to speak of godly women who adorned themselves with inward beauty. Peter also uses it in the same vein in 1 Peter 3 and when he speaks about the women of old who had the, the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit which is precious in God's sight, and they would, they would adorn themselves in this humble, quiet spirit, being subject to their own husbands. And so we get the idea of what it means to adorn something, to beautify. But the question still remains for me, how can I beautify the gospel? How can I add anything and make the gospel better, if you will? Um, I think the idea here that we want to think about is not that I can add anything to the gospel, but it is the presentation of the gospel. The adorning of the doctrine of God is the presentation of the doctrine of God. So how do we adorn the gospel? One way is by displaying the power of grace. By displaying the power of grace in our lives. Think back to that unruly, unruly boss. Maybe you're under his thumb today. Maybe you were in the past. I have a, a name in mind. I mean, I love him. God bless him. He, he's a brother in Christ, I believe. But it was a difficult season <laughs> to work with that unruly boss. When that boss demeans you, when that boss insults you, when that boss treats you like less than because you're his employee, and you, Christian, out of love for Christ, you, Christian, out of obedience to the commands of the Bible, You, Christian, because of the worthiness of suffering for righteousness' sake, even the smallest measure of suffering, do not return evil for evil, but you honor Him in obedience to Christ. You beautify the gospel of God as you display the power of the grace of God at work in your heart. When your spouse sins against you, says something, acts in a way that is unkind, and you return that with patience and humility and grace and love. You display to them the power of grace and adorn in some way the gospel. You present the gospel as lovely and appealing, the teaching of the Bible. When that rabid atheist 
get into a conversation and they're blaspheming God and speaking wicked things about your Lord and Master. And you respond compassionately and graciously and patiently and humbly, yes, speaking truth, and yes, even godly rebuking them. But in a, in, a, in a humble, gracious sense, you present the gospel in an appealing way, displaying the power of grace at work in the heart. I think another way that we adorn the gospel of God is with joy-filled Christianity. Joy-filled Christianity. And the world sees that spirit-wrought joy, that joy-filled experiential piety. I believe the other night it was called cheerful holiness. Cheerful holiness, I believe, is what is in the same vein we were talking about on Wednesday. When they see in a believer joy and contentment amidst the many troubles and trials and sorrows, when they see in you, beloved, a Godward hope and a steadfastness, a, a soul that is anchored to Christ, they cannot help but smile because the Father in heaven has smiled down upon you in His Son. Then we adorn the gospel. We present it in, a, in, a, in an adorned, beautiful light, in beautiful fashion. I, I think really we're making the beauty of the gospel more evident. And we can do the opposite, right? There's another side to that equation, and that is when the world sees a grumpy, negative, hopeless Christian, when they see a, a person that has no joy because their specific political party is not in power or, or things aren't going their way at the workplace, when they're grumbling and complaining and griping just like the next man does when their life is tossed to and fro by every little trial that comes, we can unadorn that gospel. We can unadorn the teaching of the Bible. We can show that it has little power, little hope, little appeal. And back to our text here, and back to this idea of slaves and masters, Paul would say that godly submission then adorns the gospel of God and the teaching of God because it pays homage to the fact that you serve another king. That there is one whom I live and I live for his glory alone and I care not about some unruly man that wants to demean me. I can do all things for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So Christ is Lord and we practice godly submission to adorn the gospel of God, to adorn the teaching of God, to present Christianity, the word of God, as appealing and, and beautiful. And thirdly, Christ is Lord, thus we must practice godly submission because God redeems souls and not social systems, social institutions. Let me read again from 1 Timothy 6. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be slandered. But those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them all the more. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved 
teach and exhort these things. So notice for a second what Paul has not just done. And some people have really got upset about this. Paul has not condemned the practice of slavery here. Nowhere in this text does he say, this is evil, you need to rebel against it, revolt against it. He is certainly not encouraging the church, those that are enslaved, to rebel against their slave masters. He is not telling those that have a newfound freedom in Christ, that are no longer in bondage to their sin and their sinful nature. He is not telling them, hey, you're free in Christ, now be set free. He actually says in 1 Corinthians 7, whatever condition you find yourself, stay there. If you are a slave, stay there. If you are free, be free. If you have the opportunity to be free, be set free. He does not tell them to rebel. He does quite the opposite. What he does in our text is he says to Christians, live lives of faithful obedience within the context of broken corrupt societies and systems and institutions. He even says, if your master is a Christian, don't demand your freedom. Don't demand that he let you go. Don't be disrespectful and assume that you don't have to work for him now because we're brothers in Christ. He says, serve him all the more. Because look now who benefits from your service. It is your brother. So here's the reality, beloved. Here's the reality I think that we can get out of this passage. We're not promised the transformation and the redemption of the culture that we live in. We're not promised victorious lives where all of the evils of society are going to be put under the ground and where there will be a complete upheaval. We're not promised ease in Zion. What we are promised is suffering and hardship. What we are promised and called to is to serve crooked masters because of obedience to Jesus Christ. What we are called to is to follow in the footsteps of our Master. As Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He was the one that could call legions of angels. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And beloved, find hope in those words. That there will be a day when all accounts will be settled. And the just judge will pour out his righteous indignation on all that have not bowed the knee to Christ. All that live in wickedness. All that have done wicked things and it seems in this life have gone without any repercussion. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus obeyed His Father to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, I'm not saying that there's no hope for change. There certainly is hope for change. And the Gospel is preached and Sinners learn, they're discipled in the way of Christ, and they go into the world to be salt and light. We see things like slavery abolished. Praise be to God. Much of that work was done by Christians who understood the Imago Dei, that all men are made in the image of God. 
We are promised to be delivered from the sting of death. We are promised to be delivered from the bondage of sin. We are promised Christ. But He has not promised a glorious earthly kingdom. His kingdom is spiritual. And it dwells in the midst of this fallen, cursed age. What we are called to is to serve our King in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sinful institutions. We're called to live righteous lives in the midst of unrighteous people, unrighteous societies, unrighteous institutions. We're called to preach the good news. Sinners be saved from their sin. We're called to adorn the doctrine of God. And in all adversity, in all suffering, in all defeat or destitution, that we might walk in joyful, humble obedience to our King. We're called to present the Christian life in a humble, godly, joyous, hope-filled fashion as we honor sinful masters and live obediently in broken systems that are filled with corruption, that the name of our God not be taken in vain. Because if we cannot serve an earthly master, how will we serve a God that we cannot see? The promise of God for us today, beloved, is not the deliverance from all trial and all hardship. The promise is not the restoration of all things today. The promise is the presence of God through every trial, circumstance, and challenge. The promise is the redemption of the whole man in the midst of an unredeemed world. The promise is the blessed hope of His return one day that we might stand in His glorious presence in the new creation, the redeemed earth, where all of the sin, all of the destruction, all of the slavery, all of the rebellion, all of the pain and suffering and sorrow will be gone, and it will be there that we will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And with these promises, beloved, set before us, let us be worthy sufferers that walk through trial, walk through unruly bosses, challenging situations that we do not appreciate, the suffering and trials and just weekly travails of life in a cursed world. With these promises set before us, let us be worthy sufferers for the glory of our King. That His name not be blasphemed, that His Gospel be adorned because God is redeeming sinners and not fully yet this fallen age. Let's pray.